Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Before we jump into the word, let me offer a small Surgeon General's warning for the next 35 minutes, if I could. Um, I cannot be held responsible for the volume or the passion or the aggression or the undignified nature of the preaching this morning. Um, after spending a second week in hospital rooms with a daughter that was near death, uh, I am particularly pissed at the devil today. And uh, so much so that he would just kind of target a 10-year-old little girl. What a pitiful thing to do because he's angry about what God is doing in the city and in this community. So needless to say, I got a little preaching aggression pent up on the inside of me this morning. So if you yell and you shout, I will probably yell and shout all the louder. And we'll leave here without our voices, but having won an, a, a victory against an enemy who is small in comparison to the size of our God, who just wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God wants to do in our lives. But our God is greater, our God is faithful, and we're going to win the battle. Amen. Let's do it. All right. That was four people that believed in that. That is awesome. Okay. I want to give you a title for this morning, and uh, it's a bit of a continuation, uh, a sermon that we've been preaching all year long, if you will. Um, I wanted to name this Dare to Hope Part 2, uh, but that felt a bit redundant in light of the fact that we've called a lot of things Dare to Hope, but we will talk about hope today. Uh, instead, I would like to title this chat, No Air Down There, No Air Down There. And I do want to talk about that phrase, Dare to Hope. Um, that has been a very popular phrase around the Father's house for the last nine months. We've preached sermons about it. We've written songs about it. We made prayer lists about it. Uh, we've talked about it. We're printing merchandise right now for an album and sweatshirts and t-shirts and all the stuff that's gonna say Dare to Hope. It has truly become the Father's House, uh, Father's house anthem in 2021. And I know that some of you are here today for the first time or maybe you weren't here at the beginning of the year. And let me explain why that phrase is so important to us. Uh, Dare to Hope finds its origin in the book of Lamentations with the prophet Jeremiah. And, and here's the setting. Jeremiah has just witnessed uh, the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and conquer the city, tear down its walls, burn the buildings, and carry the Jewish people off into exile in Babylon. It was prophesied that it would happen. Uh, the people of God had turned their back on him, and for years, despite the warnings of the prophets, they continued to live in sin, and so eventually God handed them over to their enemies. And now Jeremiah begins to lament and mourn the condition of his city and the condition of God's people. According to theologians, as he writes the book of Lamentations, he sits atop a cliff looking out over this decimated city, and he begins to recall what once was as he laments the, the current condition. And he writes this in uh, the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Peace has been stripped away, and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. Jeremiah finds himself as he looks at this broken city and, and, and people that have been carried away into captivity, he finds himself feeling hopeless. He said, everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. He had hoped that the people would repent. He had hoped that God would spare the city and that God wouldn't strip them of the blessing and the prosperity. And somehow the, the, the situation would be reversed. But alas, everything he had hoped for was lost. And as we started out 2021, perhaps even now, some of us still feeling this way in the room, I think we could echo that sentiment, that, that everything we had hoped for from the Lord felt lost. 
I know it's hard to think, but just nine months ago, everything was still shut down. People were still sheltered in place. There was still plenty of isolation, plenty of loss, plenty of brokenness. And yet in the middle of that situation, the Lord said to the Father's house, I want you to dare to hope. I want you to believe for beyond what you see. And that is exactly what happened with the prophet Jeremiah. As he looked over this situation and he began to lament the condition of the city, in a moment, his perspective changes. It's like the Holy Spirit showed up and sat down next to him and slapped him in the face and said, Jeremiah, I know this is what you see, but you know God is greater than what you're seeing right now. And look at what he says in the following verse here. In verse 21, he says, yet... Regardless of what I'm staring at, regardless of the broken down city and the, 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 the disenfranchised people, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness and his mercies are new every single morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. In one moment, Jeremiah goes from hopeless to hopeful, to staring at a situation and believing this is what it's gonna be, to going, no, God can do something greater than what I'm witnessing with my eyes. Hopeless to hopeful, simply by remembering these two things. God is faithful and he is merciful. Those two realities completely shifted his perspective. God is faithful. I'm gonna close my eyes for a moment. Instead of staring at the broken city, instead of staring at the broken situation, I'm gonna remember that God has never left his people like this. Even though things don't look good, until it gets good, it's not God. He has been faithful then, he's faithful now, he'll be faithful in the future, and I'm gonna trust in his faithfulness beyond what I see. But, but then he takes it a step further and he says, but he's also merciful. In other words, even if what I'm walking in right now is the byproduct of my own making, even if it was my disobedience and my rebellion that got me caught up in this mess, his goodness is greater than my failure. His mercy is greater than my bad days. And I will trust in his mercy more than I trust in my performance. And as long as I have mercy in the morning and faithfulness that follows me, I have a reason to hope even in the middle of a hopeless situation. It changes his entire perspective. And, and, and that, is, that is good news today. Let me just say over anyone in the room today who finds himself in a hope, hopeless situation, there is still hope because God still sits on his throne. The enemy has still been defeated. And although it might look bad, your God can still take a bad situation that the enemy intended for harm and he can turn it for good. He is that good. But, but hope doesn't end there. See, that's, that's good news and it gets the church clapping and it solicits some amens, but, but hope is so much more than a declaration. It's so much more than an emotion or a feeling or even a song that we sang a moment ago. The thought that I want us to consider today as we step into year four as a church is this. True hope provokes action. True hope does something. It doesn't just sit there and feel good. It actually steps out and begins to take action. And I say true hope because we need to delineate between true hope and worldly hope. There is a big difference between the two. Worldly hope is an emotion. The hopes of this world, the hopes of Disneyland and the fairies and the princesses, the wishing upon a star, yeah, that, that is an earthly hope that will probably leave you hoping still. But biblical hope is different. Biblical hope, according to definition, both Old Testament, New Testament, Hebrew, and Greek, it means this. It is to expect something good. It is a confidence 
in the outcome of what you're hoping for. And when you are confident, when you know that you know that you know that God is gonna come through, it changes the way you approach your situation. Instead of sitting back and just feeling hopeful, you begin to take action and step into that hope. It provides a compulsion to do something. Let me, let me offer a couple of examples. You, you can say, I, I dare to hope that God is going to give me a job. He's gonna open up the door for employment and an opportunity. But then if you don't do anything, if you, if you don't put your resume out there and you, know, you don't get a haircut and you, know, you, don't, you don't send in the application and you just sit by the phone and wait for it to ring, that's not hope, that is wishful thinking and nothing is gonna happen. No, true hope takes action. True hope says, I'm gonna brush up the resume, I'm gonna Photoshop myself on LinkedIn so I look a little bit better than I do in reality. I'm gonna put myself out there and I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna trust that as I take a step in this direction, God is going to open the door. That's true hope. You can say, I dare to hope that God is gonna rescue my marriage. It's on the rocks. It looks like it's gonna fall apart, but I'm gonna dare to hope that God is going to rescue it. But then if you don't do anything, if you don't change anything, if you continue to dishonor your spouse and look for every opportunity to hang out with the guys or the girls and never hang out with them, if you continue to look for ways to serve yourself instead of serving your spouse, if you neglect intimacy, then guess what? Nothing's gonna change, that's just wishful thinking. But true hope says no, we're gonna get the counseling. I'm gonna actually look for ways to serve you instead of asking you to serve me. I'm gonna prioritize our lives together, our intimacy together. It takes a step, it takes action. That's the difference. And while we're talking about spouses, let's, let's keep it fun. You can say, I dare to hope that God is gonna provide me with a man of God or a woman of God, hallelujah. There's a lot of single people in this church that are daring to hope for such things. That's why they linger on the porch after service, putting out a vibe. <laughs> but if you don't become an eligible bachelor or an eligible bachelorette, that's just wishful thinking. I like that word, by the way, eligible. All the guys that I know that are like, oh, I just, just want a woman of God. I'm like, well, are you even eligible for a woman of God? Ladies, I'm trying to help you out here, okay? So let's, let me talk to you for a minute. See, you're an ineligible bachelor. You're just wishful thinking. If you still live in the basement, play video games all day long, you don't have a job, you look at women inappropriately online, you stay shallow with Jesus, you don't pray, you don't come to church, you don't read your Bible. I'm sorry, you're ineligible for a woman of God. He's never gonna give you that. Preach it, pastor. But true hope, come on, true hope takes action. It's like, no. I shave more than once a week. I actually have a job. I pay for the meal when we go out instead of asking for the other person to pay for the meal with me. I read my word. I serve in the house of God. I know the difference between biblical laying on of hands and cultural laying on of hands. I pray in tongues. I don't play in tongues. There is a difference between the two. <laughs> Ladies, I'm here for you. I got you, okay? True hope takes action. You can say, I dare to hope that God is gonna cause our church to survive in the midst of a global pandemic. But then if you just sit in the basement and film sermons and never do anything to help the church of Jesus Christ advance, then that is just wishful thinking. But true hope says, no, we're gonna continue to do whatever it takes to storm the gates of hell and see the church of Jesus Christ built. We'll worship in the basement, we'll go down to a parking garage, we'll go out on the great highway, we'll do whatever it takes to see the church advance. True hope takes action. 
And, and Jeremiah, while he had hope in his heart, unfortunately, the prophet died still hoping. Nothing changed. But there was another man who came after Jeremiah who wasn't content to sit back and let hope remain in his heart. He took hope into his hands. He did something with it. And that's the man we're gonna talk about today. One of the legends in scripture, one of my favorite guys, a guy by the name of Nehemiah. If you have your Bible, you can open up to the book of Nehemiah chapter four, but I'm gonna give you a little context because we're gonna look at how hope provoked Nehemiah to do a couple of things. Here's the backstory. As we start out the book of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah receive word from his brother about the state of the city of Jerusalem. It is similar to the condition when Jeremiah looked out atop that cliff. It's still the walls broken down and the people disenfranchised, although the Babylonian captivity had ended and many of the people had returned to the city. While they were present, they were disengaged. They had hope in their hearts, but they were not doing anything with their hands. The city still remained broken. It still remained disenfranchised. And Nehemiah hears the news about this. At the time, he is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes uh, in uh, Persia. And a cupbearer, for those unfamiliar with that term, is a guy who literally tastes the king's wine to ensure it's not poisoned. Uh, it's a great job if you love wine. It's a terrible job if your boss is a jerk because you might die in the process. But that was his job. And as he, as he hears this news about the state of Jerusalem, old news, by the way, it had been this way for, for decades, something new is stirred up in his heart. He, he gets agitated and he says, I can't, I can't just sit back and hope from afar that things change. I'm gonna do something about this situation. And so with permission from the king and from resources from the king, he, he heads back to Jerusalem and he rallies together some of the Jewish people that are living there. And he begins this project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And as he starts out on this project, in fact, halfway through, they're making some progress, suddenly some opposition arises. A guy by the name of Samballot and another guy by the name of Tobiah, they rally together a little posse and they start opposing the work of God on the walls with Nehemiah and the people. And this is where we're gonna pick up the story in uh, Nehemiah chapter four. It says, but when Samballot and Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, Ashdites, heard the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spear, spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders, watch this, stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall and the laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. One hand supporting their load and another hand holding their weapon. In the face of opposition, Nehemiah and the people of God refused to let hope leave their hands. They kept their hands full. And it said that they had their load in one hand and a weapon in the other. They had a stone in one hand to rebuild the wall and a sword in the other hand. And they continued to build what God had called them to build. To that end, I wanna offer these two thoughts that I wanna explore. True hope does two things, according to the story of Nehemiah. True hope builds and true hope fights. Hope builds and hope fights. Would you say that with me? Hope builds and hope fights. Let's unpack these a little bit. 
So when Nehemiah gets word that the city of Jerusalem's walls have been broken down, he doesn't sit at a distance and hope from afar. He heads back into Jerusalem and he picks up a brick and he begins to rebuild the city. Along with a lot of other people around him, they're picking up the bricks and they're rebuilding the city stone by stone by stone as they rebuild the wall. Because that's what hope does. Hope picks up a brick. Hope doesn't just stay at a distance and assume that somebody else is gonna fix the problem. Hope says, no, I'm gonna actually participate in this. I, I can take a brick into my hand and I can rebuild something. But before there was a brick and before there was building, there was something else, something that many of us are familiar with. For Nehemiah, it actually started with a burden. Before there was a building, there was a burden. And you know what a burden is, right? A burden is that, that God-given frustration about a situation. It's that holy discontentment. It's that thing when you look at it, you just, you get agitated in your spirit and you go, I can't sit back and do nothing about that. That is an unacceptable situation. And as long as I got breath in my lungs, I got to do something to participate in fixing it. That's a burden. Can I ask you today, what, what has God placed a burden on your heart for? What are you burdened for? I believe if you have the spirit of God on the inside of you, you have a burden from the Holy One. There is something that agitates you. Maybe it's homelessness. Maybe it's poverty. Maybe it's the refugee situation or lack of water in foreign countries, broken families, adoption, foster care. What, what, what is it that God has placed a burden on your heart about? I believe everybody has something. There's something in you that when you hear about it, when you witness it, you just want to flip tables like Jesus did. Like, I got to do something about this. And that's not just a gift from God, to be clear. It is an invitation. It's an invitation to pick up a brick and begin to do something about it. Not to just sit back complacent and hope that somebody else fixes the problem. What has he placed a burden on your heart for? For Robin and I, that burden was this city. I've told this story many times before and I'll tell it again and I'll tell it again and I'll tell it again because it's why we're here. When we heard years ago that San Francisco was the most unreached city in the United States, that there were less than 1% of the people in this city that claimed to be followers of Christ, that according to statistics, 856,350 people were on their way to an eternity without Jesus. Let me say that more candidly. 856,350 people are on their way to hell unless they place their faith in the finished work of the cross of Jesus. Something on the inside of us went, that's unacceptable. That is absolute. I cannot stay in my current place in complacency and in comfort while I know that. Now that I know that, I have to do something about that. And so we moved to a city that we didn't know. People we didn't know paid a whole lot more for rent than we ever paid. <laughs> Got parking tickets. Stepped in human defecation on the sidewalk. Why? Because we had a burden in our hearts for this city. We weren't willing to stay in our comfortable city with our comfortable mortgage payment and our free parking, knowing that one day we were gonna stand before Jesus and give an account for our life. And he was gonna ask us, hey, Tim, hey, Robin, what did you do with the burden that I placed on your heart for that city? Did you actually take action or did you just sit back in comfort? And so we came and we picked up some bricks and we began to build. We began to build the church of Jesus Christ, not alone, with a bunch of other people that God had placed a burden on their hearts saying, hey, this is the city I'm calling to you and I'm asking you, will you build what I am building in this city? 
And I know that there's probably somebody in the room right now who's like, you know, a Bible scholar and they know scripture and they're like, well, be careful, Tim. Don't get arrogant now. You didn't build this church. This is Jesus's church. So be careful about what you said you're building. I understand that. Listen, let me be clear. Everything we've seen, every one of those statistics, every victory, all of this is Jesus. This is his church. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. It is by him that any of this has been made possible. But don't forget how Jesus builds his church. He builds it with people. He places a burden on some people's hearts and he says, this is what I'm building. Will you actually pick up a brick that I'm placing in your hand and will you build the church that I'm asking you to build? Will you be a part of what I'm doing on the earth? So yes, he gets all the credit, but he handed us some bricks and said, will you build? And we did. And now we get to witness what happens when you assume the responsibility for the burden that God has placed on your heart. But as we've seen, and as you've probably seen in your life as well, be warned that when you begin to build based on, an, based on a burden, you will, you'll find yourself surrounded by some critics. <laughs> there were some peop- there'll be some people that just, they're not real impressed with what you're doing. They'll love to run their mouth and tell you about all the reasons that what you're doing is wrong and how this is how it should be. And we've all experienced that before. With Sam Ballot and Tobiah, those dumb name, by the way, Sam Ballot for the love. But these two guys, they watch Nehemiah and the, and, and the Jewish people begin to rebuild this wall. They rally together a posse and they start talking trash. They stand on the sidelines and they become the haters. I think Tobias says at one point, that wall is so weak, even a fox could jump on and it would fall. Like, it's the dumbest insult ever. Like, get some new material, buddy. But that's what happens when you begin to build what God's building. You, you will find yourself surrounded by some haters. You'll you'll find yourself surrounded by some critics. I would love to tell you that here we are thousands of years later and the church has grown up and we've matured, but there's still some haters out there. See, what's interesting about this story is that Sambalat, Tobiah, and this posse, they were actually comprised of people that should have been participating in building the wall and not just hating on the people that were doing it. By nature, many of the people in this posse were Jews. They were left there, grandchildren after uh, the Babylonian exile, and many of them had returned, but they just weren't engaged in the work. In fact, Tobiah was a Jewish man at the head of his family that used to be in the priestly lineage, but they couldn't prove their, their, uh, their priesthood. So they were just now regular people among the Jews. But these were still Jewish people from the same bloodline that should have been on the wall building, but instead they're just on the sidelines talking. And wouldn't it be nice if the church had grown up and we'd matured And now we were all linking arms and unified around the message of Jesus and we were just helping each other build. But alas, that is not the case, is it? There are still plenty of critics out there that wanna talk on the sidelines about why what you're doing is wrong and why what you're building is is not gonna last. And this, this last season seems to have provoked an entirely new breed of them. They now have cell phones and Instagram and Facebook and news articles that they can repost and They can point the finger at fallen pastors and say, everybody's like that. And here's what's wrong with the bride of Jesus. And they just stand on the sidelines and they throw stones and they talk critically about all that's happening. And meanwhile, they're not doing anything to fix the problem. They're all talk. Never picking up a brick to build anything. And if that is you today, if you find yourself in this space 
and you're that hypercritical sideline. In fact, you probably wouldn't be in the room. You're probably online. So let me look at the camera real quick because that's where most of you guys hang out. You hang out and troll online, all right? From my heart to yours. Shut up and build something. Pick up a brick, put down your phone. Come on, the church of Jesus Christ does not need any more critics that are cloaked as Christians on the sideline just talking trash and tweeting about it and posting about it. We need some people that will pick up a brick and begin to build what Jesus is building in the earth that will give, that will serve, that will get their hands dirty and actually see something of value built. Hey, I hate to break it to you, no one cares about the opinion of someone on the sidelines. You want your voice heard? Hey, get your shoulders next to somebody on the wall building and participate in solving the problem instead of just voicing your discontentment with it. No one cares about the people that are just all talk. I, I, this last week, I was, um, I was at the hospital, obviously with my daughter, we shared. Um, but uh, Robin and I, we were, we were uh, taking turns sleeping at the hospital with our daughter. The last round, my, my wife stayed the entire time and we learned how that was a really bad idea. Uh, even though it was the desire of our daughter, we're like, yeah, for our own sanity, we need to kind of take shifts here. And so we, uh, we took shifts sleeping at the hospital this last week. And um, I was sleeping with her on Thursday night and uh, she was having a, a particularly rough day. Um, she'd been there for about five days at that point and she was unable to sleep, writhing in pain, got like 20 different medications in her to try to counteract each other. Uh, her situation was so rare, uh, it doesn't happen with kids. And uh, the doctors were still trying to figure out kind of how to treat it because they know, they're not used to seeing it in, in, in a child. And so a, a lot of, of needles and poking and prodding and just restlessness for my, for my kid. Uh, and after the fifth night of not sleeping, um, she was in bed and it was about one o'clock in the morning and she's still in terrible pain and her mind's running a million miles a minute and she just cannot get to sleep. And so uh, I climb into bed with her and I'm just, you know, stroking her hair, trying to get her to calm down and tell me what's going on in her head, get it all out there, you know, just so that you can rest. And finally at about 1.15, 1.30, uh, she's able to, to simmer down and, and, and goes to sleep. And I knew that uh, within a couple of hours, I think around seven, they were supposed to come in and uh, give her some new medication, do a blood draw, and so she was gonna get woken up anyway. But I'm like, all right, we got, we got five and a half, six hours of rest. She needs that, so don't, don't interrupt. I told the nurses, don't come in, just let her sleep. So I, I crawl over to the, uh, the windowsill where I'm sleeping, which is supposed to be a bed, and uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I fall asleep. And at five o'clock in the morning, I wake up to... Uh, an air horn outside. I'm like, what the heck? And I stops, and about 30 seconds later, I'm like, what is going on? I look over at my daughter, and every time the air horn blows, she's like wincing in pain in bed and kind of waking up. And so I'm like, what is going on outside? And I look out the window, and at 5 a.m., there's a group of union protesters that are standing in front of the hospital with their cardboard signs and their chants and their horn just waking up the whole neighborhood for like the four cars that are actually on the road at 5 a.m. to hear them and see them. So I was a little frustrated. Um, my wife came to relieve me a couple of hours later and this continued on and I had a bit of a Nehemiah moment. <laughs> so as I leave the hospital room and I go down to the, the ground floor, I'm like, do I just go to the car and go home as a responsible pastor I'm in Oakland, I could get killed, I don't know. Or do I say something? And y'all know I just, I had to say something. So 
I walk out to this group, group of protesters and uh, my opening line, I'm like, hey, which one of you idiots has the horn? They all stop. Everyone looks at me. And like 20, 30 people start to surround me and I'm like, oh God, this is where I die. <laughs> this, is, this is great. And everyone's just staring at me in silence. So I said, hey, let me paint a picture for you. The last five days, my 10-year-old little girl has been up on that 12th floor. She's been unable to sleep. She's been in writhing pain. And day and night, night and day, around the clock, dozens of doctors and nurses are trying to figure out what's going on with her body, and they're treating her. And they're doing their best to save her life. She came this close to not making it. And after five days of not sleeping, at about 1.30 last night, I was finally able to get her to rest, knowing that she would have about a five and a half hour window of uninterrupted sleep. But then at five o'clock in the morning, you morons step out onto the sidewalk and you start making all this ruckus about how you're not getting paid enough and how your life is so horrible, while the rest of the people whose jobs you should be doing are up there on the top floor saving my kid's life. I want you to, to have that picture in your head when you lay your head on the pillow tonight. And I hope you're really proud of what you've accomplished today. You're a joke. Nobody cares. Go do something that matters. Biddle out. <laughs> That's what it's like when we've got Christians sitting on the sidelines that should be up on the wall building. People that should be upstairs saving lives are down on the ground griping and complaining about all the problems with the church. Listen, grab a brick and build something. Quit protesting, quit picketing, quit bickering, and let's build the kingdom of Jesus. Because hope builds. That's what it does. But, but, but hope doesn't just build. According to Nehemiah, hope also fights. Hope fights. Listen, you probably know this by now if you've been following Jesus for more than a day, but when you set out to follow Christ, when you set out to do something of significance, when you set out to take ground from the enemy, be warned, there will be a fight. Opposition comes with the territory. I would be more concerned if you're not seeing any opposition in your life because that is probably an indicator that you're not doing anything of significance. But opposition is proof that you're doing exactly what Jesus wants you to do. You do not get to build a godly family that breaks off generational curses without a fight on your hands. You do not get to build a business of significance that sows generously into the kingdom of God without a fight on your hands. You do not get to build a community of people that are genuine with one another, that actually care and walk through trial and heartache and take down the masks and let you see them for who they truly are without a fight on your hands. You don't get to build a church in the middle of the most unchurched city in the nation where 552 people are robbed from the grip of hell and now in the Lamb's Book of Life without a fight. It just comes with the territory. If you follow Jesus and you're trying to take ground, there will be a fight. And Nehemiah, the people of God, as they built that wall, it says that in their other hand, they had a Masonic sword. The 11th sermon with this thing, the greatest prop we've ever had in this building. A stone in one hand and a sword in the other. Listen, you're gonna have to, to, to battle a little bit in this journey. You're gonna have to learn how to fight. 
Paul told Timothy, you need to fight the good fight of faith. Jesus said the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent will take it by force. He said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the offensive attack of the church. You're gonna need to learn how to swing a sword if you're going to walk by the spirit. If you're gonna take some ground from the enemy. Nehemiah didn't just build, but they also fought. But as you engage in warfare, make sure that you know what you're fighting for. And I say it that way because I think Christians are notorious for vocalizing what they're fighting against, not what we're fighting for. There's a whole lot of people out there that are making it very clear what they're against. I'm against this mandate and I'm against this ruling and I hate this mask and I'm against, I'm against, I'm against, I'm against. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you for voicing your opinion. Listen, you're not fighting against anybody or anything. Let me remind you that Jesus already defeated your adversary on the cross. It says in Colossians, his power has already been stripped from him. So even when you square up with Satan himself, you are squaring up with an already defeated enemy. You are not fighting against anybody. The battle is already won. The fight is fixed, as the preachers say. You already win this thing if you fight. But you are fighting for something. And Nehemiah reminds us here what we are called to fight for. He says this in chapter 4, verse 14. He looks at the people and he says, don't be afraid of the enemy. You're not fighting an enemy. But remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sisters, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your households. You notice how Samballot and Tobiah and all the other haters, they didn't even make it into that scripture. He did not say, hey, you're fighting against all of these people for victory. No, all he did was remind the people what they were fighting for. He said, you're fighting for people, your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your households, you're fighting for people. Hey, the Father's house, let me remind us why we're here. We're not here to fight against mandates or fight against the city or fight against a group of people. Or we're not fighting against anything. We are here because God has called us to fight for some people in this city. We are called to fight for sons and daughters and friends and coworkers and family members that do not yet know Jesus. And they're on their way to an eternity without them unless somebody fights for them. We, we fight and we will not stop fighting because every fight has a name and every fight has a face. In fact, many of you are here today because someone fought for you. You're here because you had a mom that warred for you in the spirit. A grandma that would not stop interceding for you. A friend or a coworker that just accosted you with invitation after invitation after invitation until you finally were so exhausted and hearing about it, you're fine, I'll go to church. But in that moment, you lifted your hand and you said, I'm giving my life to Jesus and your eternity was completely rewritten because somebody was willing to fight for you. But now that you've been fought for, you're called to fight for some other people. We are here to engage in warfare for every lost person that does not know Jesus yet. You, you'll notice behind me this, this graphic, Dare to Hope, it's the same one we've got on the album, uh, is subtly placed behind those words. You see all those names? That's what we're fighting for. That is the 668 people that have walked into our doors after the pandemic finally allowed us to reopen the church. And they filled out a little card and said, here I am. 
I'm ready to, to engage in community once again. And they didn't know, but there was a community of people that were fighting for them. We were fighting for Jeremy. We were fighting for Jacqueline. We were fighting for Harley. We were fighting for Chase. We were fighting for Irwin. And we were not going to stop fighting until every person that Jesus was calling made their way into his house and into his family. But I'm grateful for those names. It doesn't mean we're done fighting because there's still faces. There's still names. We've got a box full of them right here every single week that people come down and write the names of their lost friends, family members, coworkers. And so until every single one of these names has been added to the book of life, I can't read their writing. Uh, Ryan and Daniel and Leah and Anna and other people on here whose names are very difficult to pronounce. Until these people are in the house of God and in the family of God, we still have a battle to fight. We still have a sword to swing until the house is full. That is our job, to fight for people. Because that's what hope does. Hope is not a church that sits around like a country club with a bunch of comfortable people that says, well, we'll see if Jesus sends anybody to our church. And then when they show up, they look at them sideways because they're wearing a hat, they're tattooed, and like, you don't belong in our community. Go find another place. No, hope goes out into the community and it fights for some people. Hope invites, hope asks, hope prays, hope fasts. Hope does whatever it takes to see these names brought into the kingdom of God. Hope builds and hope fights. But it doesn't end there either. There's a third thing that, we see Nehemiah doing here. A third action that hope provokes. Maybe better said is a third action that hope prevents him from doing. There's this last thought I want us to look at in the scripture. And as we do, the band can come as we conclude. But if we're gonna be people that dare to hope, yes, we build, we fight. Here's the last thing that hope doesn't do. Hope can't come down. Hope can't come down. As Nehemiah and the Jewish people near completion of this work, the enemy is still frustrated and trying to find ways to, to take him out. And in chapter six of this story, my favorite part of the story, we see them make one last ditch effort to try to get Nehemiah to be taken out. He says in chapter six, verse one, Samballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, that we'd not yet set up the doors and the gates. So Samballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come down. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? That is my favorite part of this story. That is the ancient version of, ain't nobody got time for that. If you get nothing else today, please let these words singe into your heart, singe into your spirit today. I can't come down. What I am building, what Jesus is building in this community, what he's building in this city, it is too significant, it is too important for me to come down from what I'm building to engage with you, O oh enemy. I think intimidation is one of the, the, the most inconvenient yet seemingly strategic things that the enemy does to try to drag us down from what we're building. Intimidation is all hot air. It, it, none of it's true. 
He knows that, but he knows if he can get you to come down to his level, then he can get into your head and you'll forfeit a fight before you ever engage in it. And so he beckons, hey, come on down, get petty, get hurt, get bitter. Come down and talk to me down here. Get distracted and discouraged from what you're building and come on down and let's have a little conversation about the bride and about the church and all that. You need to have something in your spirit, a steadfastness in your spirit that says, what I am engaged in is far too important for me to go down to that level. I am building something and I'm fighting for something and my hands are full right now. I don't have any time to engage with the enemy. So I'm gonna stay up on this wall. Because listen to me, if you engage, if you go down to his level, I'm warning you in advance, there is no air down there. There is no air down there. Let me explain what I mean by that. My wife and I, uh, and my buddy Eric here in the front row, white pants, great guy, <laughs> great pants. We work out together uh, almost every day of the week, six days a week, he's our workout buddy. My kids call him Uncle Eric. Actually, my youngest daughter calls him Mr. Potato because his last name is Flato, not because he looks like a potato, just to be clear, okay? <laughs> but uh, we work out together uh, uh, six days a week. And uh, you know, we do our best for people in their late 30s and 40s and we, we try to stay in decent shape. But um, we decided about six months ago that we wanted to do something different on Saturdays to in involve a number of other people that, that we know. We call it the 700 Club. Uh, not to be confused with the awkward Christian TV show with like the cheesy preachers and the miracle spring water. It's not that at all. Uh, we gather a group of people and many times we'll go to the beach and we'll do uh, 700 reps of different exercises and we generally burn about 700 calories in that timeline, hence the name, the 700 Club. It's no big deal, it's just whatever. Uh, so uh, we invite all these people and we post pictures about it to you know feel good about ourselves. But uh, sometimes people are a little too intimidated and they don't wanna come work out. I won't call them out by name in here, EJ, Jenny, and some others that, sometimes they call out sick, Seth, Amy, um, but uh, Dom, Ati, uh, but uh, so there was a week a few months ago where no one wanted to show up and there was a faithful few that were still willing to work out. Um, and Eric decided to invite one, of the guy, invite one of the guys from his group, a guy named Adam that I hadn't met and he'd been attending the church uh, to join us for the workout. And when I met Adam, I was like, okay, this dude's the real deal. He shows up to the house and he's like, he's chiseled, you know, he's borderline like Adonis status. And he's got this really deep voice. He's like, hello, Pastor Tim. And I'm like, hello, sir. How are you? Hello. Hi, nice to meet you. And uh, they came to the house and we start working out in the garage. And, and as soon as we start this workout, Adam immediately becomes like, like the trainer. Like he's, the, he's that coach, the motivational guy on the side, just calling out everybody and trying to get you to work out harder. So. He starts, yeah, I'm like, come on, Pastor, you call that a push-up? No, sir, I, it's not my push-up. I could do a better push-up. Come on, Tim, no one wants a pansy for a pastor. You're right, they don't want a pansy for a pastor. I gotta, I gotta, get, I gotta get my act together. And he's like 26. I'm like, bro, I'm geriatric over here. Give me a break. But I'm doing my best to keep up. About halfway through the work, I'm like, I gotta find a way to make sure Adam never comes back to our church because he is never allowed to work out with us again. Like, I hear they need people over there at another church. So we're about, I don't know, three quarters of the way through the workout and I'm just gassed. I, I, I can't even keep up anymore. And so I assume the, I don't want to work out anymore position. For those curious, it, it looks a little bit like this. And as I'm down on the ground, trying to catch my breath, Adam looks across the garage and, and he yells over to me, he says, hey Biddle, what? Hey, there's no air down there. 
I, I said, what about, I never heard that before. What'd you say? He said, hey, there's no air down there. You need to get in your head that if you go down there, that is where you die. The air that you need, the life that you need is actually found up here. So I need you to get off the ground and I need you to keep working because the air you're looking for is not down there at that level, it is up here. Let me channel my inner coach for a moment. To every single person here at the church as we enter into year four, if you've got an accosting, angry little enemy trying to get you to come down to his level, if you have stopped building and stopped fighting because you've been distracted by what's happening down there, let me channel my coach for just a moment and tell you there is no air down there. I don't care how cheesy that sounds or how preachery that sounds, it is the truth. You cannot afford to go down to that level because what you're building is way too significant and it's way too important. So you've gotta keep a brick in your one hand and a sword in the other hand and you need to build and fight and stop listening to the petty invitation to come down to his level because your best days and our best days are not behind us. Come on, there is so much more that God still wants to do in your life. There's more that he wants to do in this city. We're walking into the greatest chapter we've ever walked into before. There's more freedom. There's more healing. There's more victory. There's more influence. There's more souls. And what we're building will outlast us. We are seeing a legacy developed right now. And so we're going to build and we're going to fight until we see victory on the other side of this thing. Come on, somebody shout amen today. There's no air down there. Sit down. Rowdy. Mark my words. If my life is any indication, if the attack on our family is any indication, the enemy feels threatened right now, kids. Something is breaking. Something is happening. We are walking into the greatest chapter we've ever seen. And you are here. You're a part of the army and we're building something great. So don't get down now. Don't stop building. Don't stop fighting. Come on, we've got some good days ahead. Amen? Amen. Every uh, eye closed, every head bowed. Jesus, we thank you for calling us to build. We thank you for allowing us to participate in building what you are building on the earth. Today, Jesus, we just make a fresh commitment to that. For every person in this room whose arms have gotten weary, whose fight has been robbed from them as they feel the air has been taken out of their sails. And it seems as though the enemy might win and be winning in that situation. Right now, we speak fresh life, fresh energy, fresh hope. May we be a people that builds and fights, that builds and fights and refuses to come down. And as we conclude today, as we do every single week, I wanna make opportunity for those who might be here this morning and say, hey, Tim, I, I would love to participate in what you're talking about, but I, I don't feel like I'm a part of the family of God. I, I don't have a sword. I don't have a brick. I, I don't even know how I got here. I just I feel far from Jesus, and I don't want to stay at that place. Listen, the reason you're sitting in this room this morning is because the Holy Spirit wanted you to be here so that he could make an invitation for you to become a son, a daughter, to, to walk back in the direction of God again. Maybe you've never made that decision. Maybe you did years ago, but you've been far from him. Today, Jesus is saying, will you come home? Will you come home? Will you join rank again?
And I wanna issue that invitation for anyone here. In just a moment, I'm gonna pray a very simple prayer with you. I invite you to pray it along with me in your heart. But before I do, can you just quickly look up at me and slip up your hand if you're here today and you need to come home to Jesus, if that's you. Got you, ma'am, thank you. Got you, yeah, right there. Yes, right there. Awesome, right there. Yeah, right over there in the rafters, thank you. Oh yeah, right over here, awesome. Hallelujah. Yeah, got you, got you, cool. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray this prayer and you just repeat it after me in your heart there. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to become your disciple. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you died for me and you rose again so that I could have new life. And today I step into that life. I wanna walk in your ways from this day forward until that moment where I breathe my last on earth and I see you in heaven. And you look me face to face and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that has been set before you. Today I give you all of me and I receive all of you in return. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, can we just thank the Lord for every single one of those making that decision today? Awesome. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.